and welcome, welcome back, guys, to the Country Fire Nerds Podcast. It is your host, Christelle Lobello. And your co-host, McCreeps. And this is our very first official Fright Night podcast, where we're going to talk about anthologies very near and dear to my heart, The Creep Shows. Uh, the Creep Shows was a 1982 anthology with George Romero and Stephen King. Uh, they were shorts that were like in homage of like the Tales of the Crypt comics and the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, Darker Fear kind of like comics that had the creep like three witches and stuff like that on the side of the comic book. They were really popular back in the 80s. My uncle had them when I was a kid and uh, I used to like go into his room and read them and stuff. Uh, but they, uh, that's what the creep shows are based off of. Um, you also had, uh, oh lord, what is the other one? I'll think of it. Give me some time. But there's also another one based, like, the creep show, but it's a different... Well, you had Body Bags, too, by John Carpenter, based off his films. Um, oh man, I cannot think of the other one. Anyway. We are going to talk about the creep shows. Creep show one and the sequel, Creep Show Two. Me and Kool-Aid are going to uh talk about each one of them and then tell you guys which ones were our favorites from each series. Uh if you don't know a lot about them, check them out. They're actually really good. Uh they actually came back and made a TV series on uh Shudder. It's based off the creep shows. Uh, they're not exactly like the 1980s versions, but they put a lot of homage and a lot of love to them. Some of them are really good, some are a little strange, but when we get into creep show two, uh, hmm, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> creep show two is definitely did not hold its standards to a uh, creep show one. Yeah. So on the top of the list, you have Father's Day. Uh, Father's Day, which, you know, like I said, we're going to be talking about our favorite ones. But Father's Day, for me, is by far my favorite one of the series. Uh, it is about a family that gets together every year to pretty much, uh, for Father's Day. For their, uh, father that was pretty much a straight-up ass, uh... Bedelia was the one that took care of their father. Uh, and he finally, he I think Bedelia had fell in love. Uh, by the way, the father's name is Nathan. Um, but he uh, ended up killing Bedelia's love so she couldn't go nowhere. And this whole time, it eventually drives her crazy. And, uh, you know, the sister is telling them... Uh, uh, Sylvia, I think's her name, gathers the nieces and nephews and, you know, their significant others to the house and they end up telling, uh, I think his name's Hank. That's the boyfriend of the niece. But he's asking about it and they end up telling him, explaining to him what happened about how Bedelia finally had enough of her father talking about, I want my cake! Where's my cake, Bedelia? And she finally gets this, an ashtray and clocks him in the head and kills him. 
And this takes place seven years later. And she explains that every year on Father's Day, they all meet up, have a nice baked ham dinner. And Bedelia goes out to the father's grave uh, to visit him. And, uh, well, for some reason, seven years later is when old Nathan decides he wants to come back. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why it took seven years, but it did. And, uh, so old Nathan comes back. Of course, Bedelia is the first one to go. She's at the graveyard, you know, talking to her dad or whatever, drunk. And old Nathan's hand pops out the grave. And for some odd reason... She drove drunk and crazy. She got out to the graveyard, but she couldn't get away from old Nathan. So, of course, Bedelia's the first one to go. Well, everyone's waiting for Bedelia to show up so they can have their nice baked ham. Uh, I think the next one to go is Hank. Because uh, I think Cass is the niece. Sylvia is the aunt, which is Bedelia's sister. Uh, Richard is the nephew, Cass's brother. They're all not wanting to really do nothing. Hank, I think, goes outside to smoke a cigarette or go find Bedelia or something. He finds his way into the graveyard. This is death number two. Hank gets to, uh, he notices the grave that Nathaniel, or Nathaniel, Nathan was in that's kind of, like, messed up. So he goes and checks it out. <laughs> I think he falls, like, he trips into the grave. Yeah. And... <laughs> He finds Bedelia's body while noticing that Nathan's tombstone-like thing is moving. This thing is moving at a snail's pace. It goes... Yeah. Eh, eh, eh. Slowly <laughs> inching towards him. And all Hank can do is... Oh, as the thing <laughs> falls on him. And that's a death number two. I don't, it's my favorite one, but the death scenes in it are just ridiculous. So, you've got, it's almost like 12 o'clock at night now. You've still got the, uh, the maid. I can't remember the maid's name. Um, oh lord, I can't remember the maid. I don't, they, she has a name, I just can't remember it. So anyway. It's dark time. It's like pitch black outside. You've got the you got Cass, Richard, and Sylvia and the maid left. Well, I think Sylvia goes to find the maid. And she is the next to die. Um, she opens up the kitchen door and there's old Nathan. Talking about I want my cake. So yeah, then you have Cass and Richard, the siblings. Cass wants to the, go... Uh, the, um, the cook's name is Mrs. Danvers. Okay, Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Danvers is also dead, by the way. Sylvia finds that out. And, uh... So, Sylvia disappears. Uh... Hank... Not Hank. Richard, the nephew, and Cass, Hank's wife... Cass wants Richard to go find Hank because it's dark outside and he's not back. And Richard's like, he's your problem. You go find him. So she finally ends up convincing her brother to come with her to help her find her husband. So they go into the kitchen. 
all the lights are off. And they're like, you know, conserving energy or whatever. So as they're going through the other doors of the kitchen, there is old Nathan with Sylvia's head on the plate. Because when Sylvia opened up the kitchen doors, I think she finds uh, Mrs. Danvers dead. And Nathan ends up breaking her neck when Sylvia finds him. So when Nate, uh, Richard and Cass go looking for Hank and they open up the doors, there's Nathan with Sylvia's head on a platter with <laughs> cake frosting on it. Tomorrow, I got my cake. It's Father's Day. So he, he finally got his cake. And that's Father's Day. What a happy ending. What a happy ending. He finally got his cake seven years later. Sometimes it may not be the ending you want, but still a happy ending. <laughs> um, Why I love that so much, it, it was my grandpa's favorite when I was a little girl. He's always quote the I got my cake line from Nathan. Uh, when I first watched Creepshow, that course was the first one. You see... That's the first short. Um, and it just, I don't know, it stuck with me. From the color palette of how they used the lighting back in the day with the red and, red and blue uh, lights. And this, it was, to me, it had the more of the comic book feel at the end of it. Um, I mean, why did he kill? Like, me and Cooler talking about that, I was like, why did he kill everybody? Besides Bedelia. And I was like, you know, I could see him get revenge on Bedelia because she killed him. But then everyone right. else, you know, benefited from it. They got his fortune. Except for Hank, which Cooley pointed that out. He's like, but Hank just found out about this. And I was he had like, no time to report it to the authorities or even think it over. He was just, you know, a casualty. He got. He was the wrong place at the wrong time, and even I point out Mrs. Danvers. I mean the maid. I'm not quite sure she, why she never reported it, unless they paid that lady off with some of that money, and so she just kept quiet. But nobody in that family. Well, I can see the other ones. The only one who didn't deserve to get killed was Hank, because he didn't know the story yeah. until that night. But Nathan's like, fuck that. I'm a crudgy evil uh, zombie man, and I'm going to get my cake. You stand in my way? Oh, well. So he got his cake. But that, that one's by far my favorite. I, I still want that tattooed on me, but you know. So uh, I'll let Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid loves this one. I'll let Kool-Aid tell you guys about uh, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. You great big lunk kid. So, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill stars uh, Stephen King as the main, I guess, protagonist of the, the short. Uh, he also wrote the short. Um, it's based on one of his short stories called Weeds. And basically... This, uh, like, hillbilly farmer dude out in the country named uh, Jordy Verrill 
happens to stumble across a space meteorite that has landed in uh, close to his house. And he comes up with a plan to sell it to the local university for like a few hundred dollars. 200 bucks, I think. Yeah. Meteor shit. <laughs> he touches the meteor and it's really hot. It burns him. So he gets some water and pours it on the meteor, which does cool the meteor down, but it also causes it to split in half, which Jordy believes will uh, cause it to be less um, expensive. It won't cost $200. It'll be like maybe like a few pennies or something. So Jordy's pretty upset. But he decides to take the meteorite anyways and try to glue it in the morning. Well, later on that night, he notices that uh, there's like green mold looking stuff growing on his fingers where he touched the meteorite. He also put his fingers in his mouth when he burnt himself. Right. And he, re he realizes that he... Th remembers that he put the fingers in his mouth. And he, uh, I don't, I don't know. Does he just wait after that? Or does he do something I don't really remember? Um, I know, if, I think he like gets super drunk because uh, I want to say he gets super drunk, drinks the vodka, and like passes yeah, he, out. He, yeah, he makes a screwdriver, yeah. vodka, and orange juice, and passes out. He wakes up later, and the vegetation moldy stuff has grown he's across itch. his body and and some parts of his house. And he's starting to itch and, and stuff like that. Yeah, he's starting to itch all over. He just decides that he should take a bath and maybe that'll solve the itchiness when he runs the water in the bathtub and he's waiting for the bathtub to fill up he sees his the spirit of his father in the bathroom mirror and the spirit of his father is basically telling him that you're basically you're going to die if you go into that bathtub. You're signing your own, like, you're pretty much accepting death at that point. And Jordy Farrell kind of questions what his father's telling him. He doesn't really take to heart what he's saying. He kind of doubts it. But before he can get any reassurance from his father's spirit, his spirit's gone. So Jordy decides to take the bath. At first, it, it does make him. him it does make him feel better. But it also causes the uh, vegetation to grow even more. Uh, to the point where pretty much his entire house is covered in, in vegetation. And he's become like a, a moss man, pretty much. There's no part of his body that's not covered in vegetation. So 
he finally takes a shotgun and blows his brains out to end his suffering. Um, the vegetation doesn't stop, though, and continues to spread uh, towards the city, the mainland. And there's supposed to be like a, a thunderstorm or a heavy rain coming in. So that's going to just exasperate the growth of the vegetation. And uh, that's where the story ends. Um, I would say it's probably the weakest story out of the first movie. Um, I prefer all the other ones over this one. It's, you know, it's entertaining to watch Jordy Verrill, but I wouldn't say there's much, there's much depth. It seems pretty empty. They didn't put as much, like, vibrancy or color into this one, besides the green of the vegetation. Um, I don't think you see any of, like, the comic book backgrounds or anything like you did in the other ones. Um, yeah, it just it just seems pretty weak. It's uh, still better than, you know, <laughs> one in the second movie, but... <laughs> mm. We'll get there, though. Don't worry, I'm sure you're wondering which one it is, and if you watched both the Creepshow films, I'm quite sure you know which one we're talking about, but we'll get to it. Leave you biting at the bit to know what we're talking about. Um... <laughs> The third, the third short in the film is Something to Tide You Over. It stars Leslie Nielsen. When I first saw this film, the only thing I knew about Leslie Nielsen was he was a goofy guy. Don't call me Shirley. And, you know, Mr. Magoo. Um, it was really good to see Leslie Nielsen as a villain. And he plays a damn good villain, even though this is a short. Uh, so Leslie Nielsen plays uh, a guy named Richard Vickers. Um, he finds out that his... Uh, Wife Becky is having an affair with Henry, which is Ted Danson. Uh, Ted Danson was a big star back in the day. Um, so, instead of, like, just, you know, getting rid of Becky, uh, he decides to uh, bury her on his uh, private beach uh, comfort point and has her being recorded as a tide rolls in as he goes to find Richard... I'm sorry, Harry. He goes to Harry's house, tells Harry he, you know, it's in his best interest if he ever wants to see Becky, come with him. Um, so Harry goes with Richard to Comfort Point, where Richard pulls out a gun. Because at, at one point, you know, Harry's like, he sees the like a grave mound in the sand. He's like, is that Becky? And he was like, I don't know, it could be. So, uh, Harry goes over there and finds out that it's not. And uh, Richard has the gun and pretty much tells it's what it is is a hole, it's a pre dug hole that he ends up putting Harry in. Harry's like, I'm not getting in that hole. He's like, If you want to see Becky again, you will. He's like, Remember, I'm the one with the gun. So Harry, you know, finally agrees to get in the hole and cover up. And uh, Richard's like, You see how it's hard it is to move around in the sand and uh. He ends up leaving uh, Harry covered up to his neck in the sand and comes back with his jeep with 
TV, a uh, camcorder, and a long cord that he attaches to the VCR and all that, and shows Harry Becky further down the beach um, as the tide's rolling in on her. And, you know, Harry's telling Richard, oh, this ain't real, you know, what he's like, oh, he goes, look at the VCR. He goes, that's on record. That's, that's playing right now. And, uh, he, Richard tries to explain to him, have a chance of survival if they can hold their breath long enough for the sand to loosen. Um, but they have to be able to hold their head, their breath long enough to do it. Uh, so, Richard leaves Harry and Becky submerged in the sand as the tide rolls in on them. Both of them, I think, can actually see each other on the cameras. And maybe it's just, I'm assuming, maybe it's just Harry that can watch Becky. But Becky's constantly calling out to Harry, you know, for help and stuff. Um, you finally see the water submerge Becky, and then uh, Richard goes back to his beach house called, I think, like Comfort Station or something like that, which he has a bunch of uh, TV cameras, live feed, like security cameras, and he can actually watch them, you know, at the beach. And uh, so eventually. The tide rolls in on Harry. You know, Harry's trying his best to hold his breath. And once that tide gets too high above his head, you know, he's starting to see the bubbles come over his nose. And you can see him, like, losing his breath. And, like, this this red aura just pours out around his head. Like, hateful he energy. He goes Kaioken. He goes Kaioken. And uh, then it goes back to uh, Richard at his apartment. Or not apartment. His uh, beach house. You know, he's dancing around and, you know, this and that. He's getting ready for a nice little bath or shower. And uh, all of a sudden, this fog rolls in. And the security camera panel that's hidden in his wall opens up. Uh, He finds it kind of strange. Richard does. He goes and checks it out, whatever. Then he goes back to the bathroom. He's, you know, getting ready for his little, his little splish splash time. Uh, And then... You know, you see these two figures outside the window. It's like two shadows. Well, it is the uh, the pissed off ghosts of Harry and Becky. Uh, and this is hours later. This is like nighttime. This is all taking place. So they come back waterlogged, covered in seaweed. Uh, Richard gets a gun and tries to shoot them. But realizes that the gunshots don't do nothing to him. So he, then he goes back into his bathroom. Because when he first meets him, I want to say it's in his bedroom that they come face to face. And uh, he can't get away from him. So he goes into the bathroom and locks the door. And as he barricades himself in the bathroom, as he turns around, there's uh, Harry and Becky in the bathroom with him. And they pretty much tell him the same thing that uh, he had told them. That he can live, but he has to be able to hold his breath long enough. And so at the end of the film, um, Richard has the same fate that Harry and Becky did. He's buried up to his neck in the, in the beach. Uh, and the surf and tide are coming up to him. And he's just laughing and, it, you know, he's going crazy and tells it, you know, 
tells, I think the cameras are there stuff still. He's like, I can hold my breath for a long time. And then the tide washes over Richard. And that's how the next story comes into play. So pretty much it's a story of revenge. Yeah. I liked it. I really enjoyed it. It once again went back to the comic book kind of S thing. Um, I really enjoyed it because Lizzie Nielsen, like I said, is not hardly ever portrayed as a villain. And it just showed that he can be a bad guy and not just a goofball. And yeah, I loved it. He did a good it. job. He did a really good job as a villain. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> Ted Danson. I mean, there's a lot of people nowadays that are like, you know, my age, 30, and like, who the fuck is Ted Danson? Let's look him up. Um, but he was, he was really popular back in the 80s and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I liked it. I liked it. Um, I, I like something to tell Joe better than I like the lonely, uh, the lonesome death of Jordy Vero. Um, it just, to me, was, there's more to the story. And it was more, almost like the Father Day kind of thing. It's more of a revenge plot than anything else. So I liked it. I thought it was really good. Now, this is also one of my favorite ones. But, um, I'm going to let, Kool-Aid really likes this one as well. So I'm going to let him take over and let you talk about our favorite floof of the shorts. Take it away, Kool-Aid. So the next short story is called The Crate, and it is also uh, written by Stephen King. Um, it follows the story of a uh, college professor named uh, Dexter Stanley and his friend, uh, let me try to find his name. Henry. Yeah, Henry Northrup. So they're both at like a like a party, I guess. All the professors are attending. Um, Henry's wife is there, and she's a pretty big jerk to Henry, and she's a loud mouth. She's rude. Uh, she uh, people call her Billy for short, or at least that's what she wants people to call her. And uh, Henry does not like his wife. No one likes his wife. That is true. No one likes her. But she thinks uh, she thinks people likes, like her, but, uh, you know, it's not the case. Henry dislikes her to the point of having daydreams of killing her. And other people celebrating her Golf death. clapping and stuff as he blows her head off. Yeah. Um, Billy treats Henry like a child. And Henry can't really do anything but accept the position he's been put into. At, at least for now. Um, it cuts to the college janitor and he's cleaning the place he uh drops a quarter i believe or yeah. some coin 
It's a corner. On the ground. Yeah. And it rolls underneath a staircase that uh, has like a a fence kind of thing underneath it, and it's locked. Almost like a grate. It's like a... It's Think of like a staircase, like how you have like in Harry Potter. It's a staircase with like a small little nook underneath it, and then there's a grate plating covering the hole in that nook. Yeah. And it's locked. I believe. Um, the janitor gets it open. He sees that there's a, a crate underneath the staircase. And it's a really old crate. It's from like the 1800s. From Antarctica. From an Arctic expedition. And he notifies uh, Dexter Stanley. And Dexter has to leave the party uh, to investigate it. So uh, Dexter and the janitor get the crate out. They bring it into um, like the science lab or whatever. They try to open it up. They, they break the locks in the crate. The janitor thinks that he felt something moving in there by itself, which, you know, Dexter completely... Um, disregards. Yeah, disregards it, because he believes that nothing from the 1800s would be able to survive for so long. It's just old National about... Geographic books or magazines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they finally get the crate open. They... Uh, the janitor lifts up the top of the crate slightly and thinks he sees like gemstones inside, but they're actually the eyes of a monster. And the monster grabs onto the janitor's arm and doesn't let go, proceeds to consume the janitor's arm. And Dexter's trying to help out the janitor, you know, trying to pull him away and stuff, but. The janitor succumbs to the monster. I believe um, Dexter has to run because the monster is, you know, completely taken over the janitor by this point. So Dexter runs away, and he's hysterical in, you know, the worst sense. He's um incoherent. He's... Yeah, like almost crazy at this point he just witnessed you know a monster from the 1800s consume <laughs> someone and so he's trying to find help um there's a grad student and i think it's dexter's uh grad student his name is charlie garrison and Charlie, you know, sees Dexter in the hallway. Dexter's all disheveled and stuff, hair all messed up, his shirts, you know, untucked on one side. He's sweating profusely. He's speaking incoherently. And uh, Charlie gets Dexter to calm down. And uh, Dexter tells Charlie that there's a monster in the science lab and it ate the janitor, which, you know, 
Charlie understandably doesn't believe. They go down, though, to investigate the science lab, and there's blood everywhere. So, Dexter tells Charlie where, um, or no, they follow the blood trail because the monster has crawled its way back into the little hidey hole underneath the stairway. So there's a blood trail leading there. So Stanley and Charlie, or Dexter and Charlie, go to the stairwell. Charlie wants to get, like, the janitor's, uh, like, shoe, I think. Yeah, the shoe that to, has the teeth mark in it. Yeah, to measure the, the bite marks to see what creature they're dealing with. Unfortunately, <clears throat> Charlie doesn't make it. I, I believe he gets the shoe, but the monster isn't inside the crate. It's outside the crate in the the hole underneath the stairwell and uh, slices Charlie's face and bites his neck and uh, Dexter runs away again just you know witnessing two people get killed by this thing he uh, goes all the way to uh, Henry's house and tells Henry about everything. Henry, for some reason, is completely calm about the situation. Like, he's being told the story. And he believes it. Um, he calms Dexter down. And ends up drugging him. To make him pass out. He gives him, like, some sort of sleep pill or something. And in his up, alcohol. Yeah, he crushes up sleep pills in his alcohol. Yeah. And he forms a plan to convince his wife, Billy, to come to the college uh, to help out with the situation regarding a student and Dexter. You know, uh, Henry uh, writes a note saying that Dexter got into a little, you know, altercation with a female student. sexual matter with a, a female student. I want to stop and... you. I want to stop you right here because while Wilma, aka Billy's, reading this letter, like she's coming home from some kind of meeting, she gets pissed because the front door is unlocked. She doesn't know Dex is upstairs, locked in the library, passed out. She sees the note. And as she's reading it, it's in Henry's voice. But this bitch grabs some milk and liquor. I don't know what alcohol she mixes with the milk. But she grabs milk from the fridge and alcohol and mixes it into a glass. Yeah. And that bothers me so bad. That's pretty disgusting. She is an alcoholic, so I'm sure it doesn't faze her much. But... Um, so Billy buys the story she believes it she heads to the college um henry is in the middle of cleaning up all the blood that the monster left behind to get rid of any you know evidence of there being a monster uh when billy arrives henry uh tells her to come to the science lab or come down the stairwell towards the science lab and 
tells her that the female student is underneath the stairwell. And he can't help himself from laughing. Because... I think he's laughing because uh, what he wants most in life at that moment is about to come true. But he ends up telling Billy he's laughing because the situation's kind of, kind of funny, because the female student has stuck herself underneath the stairwell. So, anyways, Billy goes underneath the stairwell, and Henry pushes her towards the box where the monster, or he believes the monster is. And starts to shake Billy against the, the box to, you know, alert the monster or whatever. And he starts yelling. Oh, wake up, wake up, dinner time or something like that. Yeah. The monster doesn't do anything. And Billy, you know, like, I guess, I think she hits him with her purse a few times. Yeah, she tells like him to never put her, his hands on her again or something like that. Yeah, and that's when the monster comes out of the box uh, and gets Billy. And uh, Henry uh, runs up the stairs, I believe, and, you know, he's still kind of sickened by the situation because you know, he's happy that Billy's gone, but he also just saw a person get eaten alive. Um but ultimately, he's happy about the situation. Uh, he goes back to his house. Uh, he and... Dexter. Uh, yeah, Dexter. They load up the crate onto a, like a car mm -mm. or a truck or something. No, no, no. Henry does it. Henry relocks the crate, I think. And he does all that by himself. Dexter's still okay. passed out. The house. Henry relocks the crate best he can and then drives the crate to the uh oh god, what do they call them? The what pits. Yeah, and he drops the crate into the pit. And uh then he goes back to his house and tells Dexter that he handled the situation. And they start playing a game of chess, you know, as if nothing ever happened. And then it shows uh, the monster uh, escaping, or the monster still being alive in the crate, in the pit, in the, uh, the water. And uh, presumably escaping from the crate. So, that's where it ends. Kind of a, a cliffhanger ending. Um, that is, uh, the crate's my favorite story in the first movie because it's like, it's an open, it's an open-ended ending because the monster's still alive, but I would say it's still like a happy ending. People almost, have died. Almost like Father's Day. <laughs> yeah. People have died, but like... Henry's happy now because he's no longer in a relationship with uh, a verbally abusive woman. And, I mean, Dexter doesn't get anything out of it. I'm sure he's, you know, traumatized at this point, but at least he's still alive. 
And there's so. nothing pointing back to them being a cause of the murders or disappearances. So there's nothing tying them to anything because Henry cleaned yeah, up all no the evidence. Yeah. Just tell us so. to call you Billy. You you had a you had a root for Henry the whole time in the crate. Like I couldn't stand Wilma. I was like, oh god, this bitch. Just call me Billy. Everyone else does. And I'm like, alright, you drunk. Like Henry, you child, what would you do without me? I don't know, Wilma. And that's like the way he does it, I don't know. Like just defeated. And people just look at yeah. him like, Are you you are you not gonna stand up for yourself? You can't help but to feel bad for him. Yeah. So at the end when he, you know, at that one point when he's like hitting her against the crate tomorrow, wake up, wake up, dinner time. And, you know, she's just looking at him and, you know, she's like, really, really, Henry? And like she starts smacking him with her purse and all that. And that's when the fucking monster, old Fluffy, comes out and gets him. If we, I, anyone who's in like, you know, is a lifelong fan of the creep shows. Everyone knows. Fluff, the creep creature has been lovely dubbed Fluffy. He is our favorite fluff from the films. So, if you don't, if you haven't seen the creep shows, when you watch the crate, he is dubbed Fluffy. Because he's so fluffy. I wouldn't want to pet him, though. I'm good. No. He could stay in that crate. <laughs> I ain't about to open that bitch. Ever find a crate from the Antarctic from the 1800s? I'm just going to leave it where it's at and move along. I ain't about to dig in that thing. Mm -mm. <sighs> and of course, I get the last short of creep sh or the first creep show. This, this short is what gave me my irrational fear of roaches. And it's, they're creeping up on you. Oh god, I hate this one. Still to this day I watch this one, I get the heebie-jeebies like I start to squirm. Um, they're creeping up on you is about a rich jackass of a man, Upston Pratt. He lives in like this super it's supposed to be super duper like pristine, germ-free apartment. Um it's uh it says he suffers from misophobia which i think that's like a fear of germs yeah uh but he like has this ultimate fear like and he finds like roaches and stuff it's like storming one night and he keeps finding roaches like he doesn't leave this apartment apparently like everything he talks to is like through like this intercom or the phone so uh and he had of course he has like you know, little machines going off that shows him, like, stocks and everything like, like that. Uh, so, uh, Pratt gets told that one of his business rivals, Norman, I think, Castamere or Castermeyer, uh, had committed suicide. And the dude's like, oh, wonderful. You know? And, uh, he keeps getting phone calls, and some of the phone calls he's, like, blowing off. He's like, look, I have a bug problem. And so he's trying to get someone to come and, um, get these roaches out of his apartment um and i think he tries to call someone to uh 
come and get the bugs, but apparently they can't get someone out there till like 11.30 or something like that. And he's like, that's fine. So this whole time, you know, he's still killing you know, like one or two roaches, talking to himself. Well, he gets a phone, a random phone call as he's spraying these bugs from a woman, which is his rival's wife, who tells her, tells Pratt about his final moments, uh, and for him being the reason of his death, and, uh, he was like, you know, she's like, his wife says something to him, and he's like, only the ones that deserved it. I guess being so, uh, cold-hearted and careless. And, uh, after that, he's making, like, some breakfast or lunch or whatever it is. It looks like cereal, like Brazen Bran, in a blender. And, uh, I think this is when he tries to get a hold of, like, the guy that owns the building about the, the roaches. And the guy's like, I'm all the way on vacation with my family in Florida. And he was like, well, if you want a job, you're going to get your ass back here and take care of this roach situation. Uh... So he starts eating his cereal, and he realizes there's something wrong with the cereal. And so he goes back to the blender and sees, like, chunks of something brown in it. So then he pours out the cereal box, and there's roaches in the <laughs> cereal box. Ugh. Delicious. So he's, he's trying to stomp all these roaches and stuff. And he's trying to get the handyman, you know, to get the people here. The next thing, though, uh, I think there's, like, a blackout. And, like, yeah, it's the black, I think the blackout happens after he gets the roaches into cereal. So he's trying to get the, the, the handyman to get the fumigators. The lights go out. And, like, during the blackout, like, you start seeing the roaches, like, coming everywhere like they're filling up like his jukebox to fill up the lights and like this whole time he's like running around trying to stomp <clears throat> on these roaches and like he's trying to call for help on the outside like he calls the police and tells the cops I have a bug problem and the cops are like yeah well we're kind of busy tonight and he's like do you know who I am I'm Upston Pratt I'm and he keeps trying to like use his name and the cops are just like, yeah, whatever, you know, we're busy tonight. And I mean, all this time, he's got these, all these, I mean, big cockroaches, like the size of your finger and bigger. Madagascar cockroaches, all kinds of roaches just crawling everywhere. Ugh. And he finds out that, the, uh, I think Mr. White is the handyman. He's stuck in the elevator. And, um... He can't get to him. So, Pratt ends up locking himself in his bedroom. And, like, he's like, you can't get me in here, this, this, and that. And eventually, like, the cockroaches start, like, swarming into the, um, like, the whole apartment's, like, just swarming with them. And you get another phone call from, uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, Kassmeyer. Kassmeyer's wife. 
like telling him you know she hopes he dies and burns in hell or stuff like that i mean she's just like going at him she's cursing him out and uh that's when pratt realizes that the roaches have like got into his little safe space the panic room and gets overwhelmed by the cockroaches which gives him a heart attack pretty much he dies so next thing you know once he has a heart attack and dies the lights come back on the whole city had like a rolling blackout well upton pratt dies the city lights come back on and you hear um and like in his whole room his whole apartment there's no roaches anywhere like they're gone there's no roaches uh pratt's body is on his bed in the panic room and you hear mr white tomorrow uh what's the matter mr pratt bugs got your tongue and like he's laughing and all that and then he keeps tomorrow answer me mr pratt answer me you bastard and this is what not it just this part that really got me scared of roaches is it pans into the um to the body of upston pratt and things start to move and like one of the veins in his head like ruptures and starts spraying blood and then roaches start pouring out of his mouth and then roaches burst through his chest and like the room is like halfway full like from like the ground up of roaches oh 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 don't get me wrong the body is fake as hell you can tell it's a dummy but when you're oh, a yeah. child and see that you're going oh my god can roaches do this and i'm like mm-mm, mm-mm. so to this day i'm terrified of roaches thanks to they're creeping up on you I still like it more than Lonesome Je Death of uh, Jordy Verrill. But that is my least favorite for the reason of the roaches. Ugh. Oh, man. It just goes to show that greed doesn't solve everything. Having all the money in the world doesn't solve everything. And sometimes you're the biggest bug of them all. Yeah. Don't Ugh. be a pest. Don't be a pest. Oh man, Upston Pratt got what he deserved for just being a straight dick. <laughs> but oh we, I wouldn't wish that death of roaches busting out of anyone's body. Oh, oh, I hate it. Ooh. Um, so that that is the first film. That is all the shorts, and then it goes, which we didn't really explain the first, the shorts, the prelogue and epilogue, I guess, parts of the little boy, the comic book. Of creep show and the dad taking it away um so of course there's a little billy hopkins this is the prologue his father stan finds up reading the creep show comic takes from billy throws it out and um the mom of course is trying to like defend the little boy but he said he didn't want him reading something like all that horror crap so billy goes upstairs <laughs> wishing his dad rots in hell and that's how the creep show shorts begin because the creep show the creep is outside billy's window and uh like tells him to come closer to the window and that's how it transitions into father's day it like opens up a comic and transitions into father's day um the epilogue is uh 
pretty much the next morning, like the dad and mom are downstairs. Uh, there's two trash men that uh find the uh the creep show comic. One of them is actually Tom Savini. Uh, they're looking through the comic book, talking about the X-ray specs and the Charles Atlas bodybuilding course, and then they talk about the uh, voodoo doll. And they were like, "Well, it's already someone's already used it." So it goes back into the house where it shows Stan, the father, complaining to his wife about having neck pains. And somebody figured he must have sprained it. Well, unbeknownst to them, Billy is upstairs, and it reveals him with the voodoo doll, and. Because the mom's ironing her shirt downstairs while she's talking to the dad. And when she lifts it up, she realizes there's been a hole cut into it. She kind of, like, tosses it to the side so he doesn't notice. Um, but Billy has a piece of that yellow shirt of his dad's on the voodoo doll. And he's sitting there stabbing his dad in the neck with a needle. Laughing. And he's just com <laughs> completely just ready to kill his dad. Like, getting revenge on him. And, uh, that is how... That's the last transition to the animation for the final time is where they show Billy stabbing the voodoo doll and then you hear the creep laughing and that's how the film ends. Fun fact, little boy Billy is actually uh, Stephen King, Joe King's, that's his son. Billy is Joe King, which is Stephen King's son, which I didn't, I just learned that. I was like, oh wow, I didn't know that was Stephen King's son. But yeah, little Billy in the film is Stephen King's son, Joe, who also writes books like his father. But yeah, that was Creepshow 1. A pretty good movie overall. Not a perfect movie, but very, uh, it's worth the watch. Uh, worth the money. I would definitely recommend people watch it themselves. Hopefully we give we give you guys a good explanation on on the on the stories of each short, um, but we can only explain so much and tell you the storyline basics. But you have to watch yourself to fully uh, appreciate it. That's the best way I can I can explain it is watch it and appreciate it for yourself because I, we can explain it all day long, but do you really? immerse yourself in that magic that's creep show oh man you're missing out now the second one oh man oh man so cool do you want to talk about uh do you want to talk about old chief woodenhead or do you want me to talk about old chief woodenhead uh I could talk about it. I'll let, so, you, I'll let you talk about that one. I'll, I'll talk about your favorite one of the film. <laughs> um, so the movie starts off with Old Chief Woodenhead. That's the name of the short. Um, there's an elderly couple, Ray and Martha Spruce. And they live in a, a small town. And they ha have a shop there, like a store, like a, a general store, kind of. And they've had this shop in this town for a long time. And the town used to be like a sprawling, uh, larger town. I wouldn't say a city, but it used to be a much larger town. 
a lot more traffic, a lot more people, more business. But now it's kind of like, you know, a rural, a rural town uh, in the middle of the country because all the business and industry has moved onward. Um, but the wife wants to close the shop because they haven't made a sale to anyone uh, in like a few days. So business is very, very seldom. Um, the husband, the elderly man, wants to keep the shop open because uh, the shop has done a lot of good for their family. And he still wants to give to the community, even though he's already given so much to it. So uh, he, I believe he convinces his wife to, uh, you know, let him keep the shop. There's a group of Native Americans who come by. Uh, I believe one of them is a, uh, a chief of a tribe. Uh, his name is Benjamin White Moon. And he stops by the shop uh, and gives the elderly couple uh, a bag of, of like tribal jewelry and they he gives it to them uh as a like a, a promise i guess it's collateral. pretty much saying collateral, um, for the collateral for the debt that his people owed them yeah he's pretty much saying that um if we don't pay you for all the things you've done for us, then you can keep this uh, this jewelry that's been in the family for generations, or in the tribe for generations. Uh, the elderly man, uh, Ray, uh, doesn't really want to take it because he kind of you know feels bad for taking it, but the the uh, Native American chief tells him. Don't worry about it. If you give it back to us, it's actually dishonorable for us. So uh, Ray keeps the, the bag of jewelry and goes about his day. Well, he goes back inside the shop. And he finds that there's a, a group of uh, teenage ruffians, delinquents, in his shop. One of them has a gun. And the other ones have, like, you know, they're trashing out the place. I think one of them has, like, a, a weapon of some sort. Um, but they're, they're there to steal, to rob the place, take the money, take, you know, whatever else they want, and, uh, and leave. One of the delinquents is the uh, nephew of the Native American... Uh, chief of uh, Benjamin White Moon. So the old man, Ray, is basically telling uh, the nephew, you know, what would the tribe think? What would your uncle think of you doing this? And the, uh, the nephew, his name is Sam, Sam White Moon, basically says, uh, I don't care. 
about the tribe. I want to go to Hollywood and become a star, a movie star. But to, to get there, I need the money. So they're robbing the store to get money to get to Hollywood, all three of the, uh, the uh, delinquents. Um, two of the delinquents are thinking, you know, they're just there to, you know, rob the place real fast, grab some stuff and leave. But Sam uh, stays there, you know, longer than they anticipated to mess around with the old people, pretty much. Um, Sam takes Martha, uh, Ray's wife, hostage. And tells Ray not to move. He notices that Ray has a bag of, of the jewelry of his tribe and tells Ray to give him the jewelry, um, you know, to like sell it for more money. Uh, Sam ends up shooting Martha, I believe, on accident. Yeah. And. You know, all the delinquents are kind of uh, surprised at what just happened. Um, oh, Fatso Ray vomits, up... I think. What? Fat, Fatso, one of the delinquents, like the fat guy yeah. that keeps eating all the food, like he ends up throwing up and stuff. Yeah, yeah, he ends up <laughs> throwing up his food and stuff. Um, Sam also ends up shooting Ray. Um... Because, you know, it's, I guess it would be kind of stupid to shoot one and then leave the other one alive. No to witnesses. Report you. Um, but he shoots him. Uh, the one of the delinquents who is the driver, the getaway driver, pretty much, um, isn't quite sure if he wants to stay in the group or not after what just happened, but Sam reassures him that, uh, you know, if they get to Hollywood and become stars, nothing of this will matter. And he tells them, he tells the uh, driver to pick him up at 11 o'clock and Fatso so they, they can go to Hollywood. Well, there is a wooden statue of a uh, Native American chief outside of the general store that the old man has been taking care of for, you know, a long time. Repainting his, it was war paint on his face and stuff occasionally. And, you know, having conversations with him. Well, when the delinquents leave the general store and head back to their houses, this wooden uh, Native American chief basically starts moving and comes to life and he reapplies his war paint on his face and basically tracks down these kids individually the first one he tracks down is fatso who is in his trailer watching tv and eating food uh the chief old chief uh, woodenhead shoots him with an arrow through the stomach, I believe, first, and then through the neck, or the throat, yeah, the throat. and kills him. Uh, 
The second one he tracks down is the getaway driver. He uh, destroys or smashes up the getaway driver's car. And once the driver sees it, uh, that's when Old Chief Woodenhead strikes and kills him. He kills him with his axe, his tomahawk or something. Yeah, something like that. While his family is in the living room of the house watching TV, they don't hear any of this. They don't hear the car being destroyed, and they don't hear their son screaming for help. <laughs> like, these yeah. rich people are just watching their TV. That's it. Like, you could tell they really don't pay attention too much to their son, I guess. TV's more important than your son, I guess. Priorities. Um, yeah. So the last one alive is Sam White Moon. And Old Chief Woodenhead tracks him down to his house. Um, I believe Sam sees him in the mirror when he's looking at himself because he, he's very egotistical, very narcissistic. He loves the way he looks, his long, gorgeous hair. He boasts about his looks constantly. This hair is going to get me laid and paid. <laughs> so... He sees old Chief Woodenhead and tries to run away. He can't believe that a that a wooden like carving or statue has come to life. He tries to, he runs around us around his house, you know, trying to escape old Chief Woodenhead. I believe he goes into the bathroom with a shotgun that he had uh, during the general store robbery. And old Chief Woodenhead busts through the wall, I believe. Yeah. And drags him out of the bathroom. By his hair. Yeah, by his hair. And then Old Chief Woodenhead grabs his, his uh, hatchet or tomahawk and scalps him. And I'm assuming kills him as well. Well, back and in the day, you got scalped. That most likely would kill you because of all the blood vessels in your head. Yeah. So scalping was a form of killing people. So he, he died from that. So the next morning, uh, Old Chief Woodenhead is back in his original position with the scalp of Sam White Moon in his hand. And um, let's see, uh, Benjamin White Moon, the uh, Sam White Moon's uncle, comes back to the store that morning. And notices that the store has been uh, messed up. You know, things have been pushed around, knocked over, taken. He notices the scalp of uh, his nephew being held by the uh, wooden chief. And I believe the chief also has the uh, jewels, the jewelry in his other hand or next to him. Mm-mm. Benjamin wakes up and the jewels are in his bed. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's covered in blood, and that's why he goes to the the general store to see why you know what happened. And that's when he sees Sam's scalp and Chief Woodenhead's hand, and that Martha and Ray and all them had been killed. Yeah. And he he thanks the the chief for what he's done, and uh, you know tells him goodbye or something. He can be and, at peace uh, now. Have a peaceful, 
peaceful afterlife or be at peace at afterlife, something like that. Yeah. And uh, that's how the movie ends, or that's how the, the short ends. Um, out of the three shorts in the movie, I'd probably say it's the middle one, like the second best, or second worst, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, There's only one bad one in this one, Kool-Aid. I mean, all three aren't as good as the first, but it, Chief Woodenhead was still good. Yeah, it was... It was okay. Um, it was entertaining to watch, but I would say it would be it's like on par with um, the lonesome death of Jordi Verrill. It's not bad, but it's just not fulfilling, I guess. I mean, I'm glad the old people. I'm glad that you know Chief Woodenhead. You know went and sought vengeance for Martha and Ray. And, you know, of course, to reclaim the jewelry. Because, I mean, Ray put so much love and care in looking after him. You know, and of course, in Native American, you know, folklore and cult culture and stuff like that, you know, certain things like this, spirits and stuff of warriors and all that, I mean, I can appreciate it. You know, with us being, you know, border native, kind of, it kind of, you know, kind of resonates a little bit. I like it. I'm, I can't look at the cigar Indians, though, like, in the gas stations, right, ever since then. Like, I'm always, you know, like, I don't know if I, like, say hello to it, if it's going to look at me, I nod. Because if it does, I'm going to freak the fuck out, but... <laughs> Look now, Chief Woodenhead. Uh, but I, I mean, it was it was a good one. I didn't like the villains, but I, you know, I like I like the con. I like the story of what the story was about. It was about honor and reclaiming honor, and doing what was right, and protecting what was yours. So, I like it. Now the next one, which is mine, that I have to talk about. I hate it. Mm, it's this absolutely is, terrible. This is the worst one out of the first and this one's shorts. It's called The Raft. <sighs> the Raft is about four college students, uh, Deke, Laverne, Randy, and Rachel. They go out to this like lake, desolated lake place. During like, I'm assuming they're up for the north because their tomahawks already getting cold. And, like mid October, they go up to this lake that no one's around because you know people are gone back home. I think this is supposed to be like a summertime spot or something like that. So it's desolate. No one's out here. They're all beach houses or beach homes or lake homes for the summertime. They show up and they find this raft floating. In the middle of this lake area. So. They all start getting you know naked. They're, you know they've been. Smoking the devil's lettuce. They all get off their clothes. The dudes get in their little shorts. The girls go out there. Uh, Randy. Is the one that notices a duck. Struggling. Against something. Pulling on it like something's like trying to eat at it or something. And uh. 
if finally the duck goes underwater. So the big jock guy, Deke, uh, gets on the raft first, and then it's Randy who saw the duck going under. Because all you see this duck flapping, and it looks like like a plastic bag, tar. You can't really tell what it is. But the duck's like, you know, wank, 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 trying to get away, and then it just goes, and it's gone. So Randy gets up to the, the raft, and I think the next one to get up there is Laverne, maybe? Or no, Rachel. I think Rachel is the one that gets up there next. I think Laverne is the last one. But when Randy's looking at out at the uh the water as Sam and Deke are on the raft, he sees that that uh something's starting to move toward him. So he's telling the girl to swim faster. Which in my when you watch the film, the girl is closer to the shoreline than the fucking raft. I'd have told her turn around and go back to the beach. Yeah. But no, he tells her to get on the raft when she's clearly closer to the the beach part. Anyway. They all swim, they get up on the raft. And then they discover the big blob-like creature. Like I said, look... I told Cooley nothing's more terrifying than what looks like to be a trash bag or a tarp floating in the water. It's supposed to be like some kind of like thing that looks like an oil slick. But it looks it, when it flows through the water, it looks like trash bag. I don't know what it is about it. I, I, maybe it's just my bias on how much I hate this film. But they notice it starting to um, float around them on the uh, on the raft. Uh, and then he, I think it's Rachel and Randy talk about how you know they've done like oil spill cleanups before with animals and stuff like that. And this doesn't look like an oil slick that they've ever seen anymore before in their life. Uh, so the girl. Rachel, the one that was with Randy, with the oil slick cleaning up situation, this girl decides to touch the the blobish like creature. And the damn thing shoots up and grabs her by the arm and pulls her in. So the kids start freaking out. You know, this girl's like screaming, Oh, uh, help me, it hurts. And, you know, she pops up and she's got all this goop. It, all in her, and it's just digesting her, and she finally goes away. She's dead. That's the first one. So, they're panicking, and because, and then they realize, because, ding-a-ling-ling, ding-dong's ahoy, that they came when there was no one here. Like, it's the off-season for this little summertime resort area. There's no one there to help them. They're by themselves. So, the big jock guy, Deke, he was like, I'm going to swim to shore and make a break for it, you know, try to get help. Well, the sludge has constantly been, like, floating around him. It hasn't left him. It's sentient. It, Deke, I think, has his feet, like, instead of, uh, vertical on the slats, he has them horizontal. No, he has them vertical on horizontal slats, so his feet are going over those slats in the wood. The blob figures out they can like shoot itself through the slats of the wood and grabs Deke by the foot and ends up yanking him down through a part of the raft into the water. 
So that it's leaves... kind of funny to watch, actually. All you see is his leg like break, and his legs like right there touching his forehead. And I think the only thing left from Deke is like his, I think, college or high school ring or whatever that he had on his hand. Yeah. That's all that's left of him. So now all that's left is Randy and Laverne. Laverne, I think, was supposed to be like Deke's girlfriend or FWB. I don't know. And I, I think Rachel and Rachel and Randy were siblings, or maybe they were dating. Um, but I think they were dating. I think maybe. But so, like, Randy and Laverne are taking like uh. Before the before the next morning, Randy and her are taking turns like looking out, and Randy tells her, you know, stick your feet long ways to go with, to go with the slats. Don't have your feet going across them, because it can get you through the wood. So at one point in time, which doesn't make sense because I don't know if he was standing when he put her down on the on the wood slats before he does what I'm about to talk about. Can't remember. I know she was asleep. Um, but him and Laverne are still alive on the raft. Uh, and he forgets, I guess, that the blob can go through the slats of the raft. He lays his poor girl down on this raft and starts kissing on her. And touching on her titties. Yeah. This dude's about to rape this girl. Because the girl has no idea what's going on. And like. For some reason I guess. He decides you know. Maybe this isn't the right time for rape. So he stops. And like the girl's like moaning and stuff. And the next thing you realize. Because he's laid this girl long ways. Against these wooden flats. On the raft. Is that. The blob has went through and is stuck to her face. And she starts waking up screaming in agony because she's being eight. So the blob ends up pulling her uh off the uh I think off the raft, if I'm not mistaken. And like I think of course so. she's like screaming. I think yeah, I think she pulls her off. She screamed for help and all that, and you know. So Randy's like, "Well, fuck this! It's eating on her. I'm gonna make a run for it." Well, he finally jumps off, swims to the beach, and the blob is coming after him. And you know he's swimming and looking, and it's panning to him and panning to the blob, and the blob is like, you know, cruising, moving around. Well, Randy makes it to the shoreline. Makes it is the only one that survives. This dumb bastard. Not only did he try to rape this girl, gets her killed, but makes a break for it as this girl is getting digested. Once he breaks the water and gets back on the beach, stands by the water and goes, I beat you. That fucking blob shot out of the water, engulfed him, and drug him back in. And the last scene of that short is the car is still on and the radio is still playing and it pans off to this side 
and has a little wood thing by around the bush that says no swimming. That is the raft. I hate it. It's painful to watch. The acting is atrocious. Like, they just picked some random kids and was like, hey, you want to be in a spooky film? Okay. Great. You're hired. It's fucking terrible. From the art design of the monster to the acting, just to the ending, I beat you! Which, you know, in a way, you know, I hate that film. At the end, I had the root for the monster because just because of that, I'm like, why the fuck didn't you get to the car and get in the car? Like, I would have not stopped if I swam for my life. I sure as shit, knowing that this thing can shoot up into the air, I'm sure as shit not going to stop at the shoreline and then gloat that I survived it where it could still reach me. Yeah. You it's really hard to get invested in these characters when they're shallow and none of them are really good people. I'm just like... <sighs> you know what? You got what you deserved. You got what you deserved. You know what? You know who I do feel bad about, though? The duck. What? I feel bad yeah. for the duck. That poor duck was just doing his own thing. Trying to be a duck. Trying to live a peaceful life like a plant. And got ate by the blob. <laughs> Alright, Ghislaine. You get the last one. Alright. So, the last one, uh, in my opinion, is the best one out of the three shorts. Great. It's called The Hitchhiker. And it's about a, a woman named Annie Lansing who... Um, as having an affair and uh, she wakes up one morning after having sex with this individual who is not her husband uh, she wakes up late because there was a powder a power outage during the night which caused the the uh, digital alarm clock to not go off at the right time so she tries to hurry up and drive home because uh, she doesn't want to cause her husband to be suspicious of her. Uh, so she's driving kind of haphazardly, trying to rush home. And she's smoking a cigarette. Some of the ash from the cigarette gets on her clothes, which, you know, kind of freaks her out. You know, she, she tries to brush the ash away and stuff. And uh, she loses control of her car. And there's an, a really unlucky uh, hitchhiker on the side of the road. And he's holding a sign that says Dover. So, I'm, you know, I'm assuming that's where he wants to go. Uh, she runs him over and kills him. She does not stop to see if he's okay. She just keeps driving. Some other people stop, like a, um, a truck driver and a couple of other people stop to check if he's okay and call the police and stuff. But she keeps driving and she tries to, you know, reassure herself that everything's going to be okay. She's not going to report it 
unless the guilt is too much for her to handle. Um, she keeps driving. And she sees the hitchhiker uh, in her rearview mirror. She looks up at the mirror and, you know, looks behind her. And she sees the hitchhiker she just ran over. You know, and that, that spooks her, you know. Um, but when she, you know, looks at it again, it, the hitchhiker's gone. So, you know, she thinks she's just, you know, seeing things because of her, her guilt. Um, all of a sudden, uh, she she st stops her car. And all of a sudden, the hitchhiker is outside of her window. Thanks for the you know, ride, he's lady. All, he's all bloody and stuff. And he's like, <laughs> he says to her, thanks for the ride, lady. And, uh. She's obviously, at this point, extremely spooked, uh, very scared. Um, the uh, Annie, the, the woman, drives off, uh, trying to get away from him. The hitchhiker's on top of the car. And he puts uh, his hand through the sunroof, trying to, you know, grab onto her and stuff. And she's, you know, driving sporadically, trying to get him off the car and stuff. Because uh, having somebody that you just ran over and killed all of a sudden come up to you and grab onto your car isn't exactly something you want happening. And um, she, she takes drastic measures and drives off into the woods, off the road, to, you know, hopefully shake him off of the car. Um, she... I believe she crashes into a tree at this point. And... Um, the hitchhiker goes blank forward uh, in front of the car. And... She decides to back up and keep driving forward, ramming the hitchhiker into the tree to, you know, crush him and finally kill him. Um, after some time, she knocks herself out and wakes up. The hitchhiker's gone. Uh, she doesn't really know where she is, but she... Uh, she assumes that it was all just a like a bad dream or something. And she figures that she can use this uh, as an excuse for her husband. If he asks her what took her so long getting home, she can just say that she, you know, drove off into the woods, you know, crashed, had an accident. Um... So she tries to drive off and find the road again. And there was a point with like where she had a revolver. I think it might have been before she crashed into the tree. Yeah, because that's when 
the hitchhiker like crawls into the side of the car and he's got his sign that says Dover, but then he switches over and it says, you killed me. And I think that's when she loses control of the car again. And that's when mm. she, that's when they, when they go off the side, that's when she's got him pinned up against that tree and she keeps slamming him back and forth. But she had the gun out because she was trying to shoot him when he was in the side passenger seat. Which, you know, yeah. that's going to work. So before she ran into the tree, um, the hitchhiker managed to get into the car. Uh, she took out a revolver that she had in her glove compartment and loads it and shoots the guy, which does not kill him because he's pretty much a zombie. Or an angry spirit, or something. Uh, it makes him flinch, but it, the bullets do not uh, do any damage. Uh, and that's when uh, she crashes into the tree and stuff. There's a lot that goes on in this short. Yeah, it's pretty uh, dense with material. But um, so after she wakes up from crashing into the tree, she drives home she gets home uh before her husband is home and usually her husband gets on gets home on time every time he's never late and he's never early so she's very surprised that she got home before he did um she drives into the garage and she's about to get out of the car. And then she notices the uh, the hitchhiker come out from underneath the car like he was hanging on to the, un the underside of the car the entire time. And he tells her, thanks for the ride, lady. Uh, and he tries to fight him off. Uh, which, you know, doesn't really help, you know, if you used a revolver against the guy and it didn't put him down, then I'm pretty sure your fists aren't going to do much damage either. Um, but the garage door closes and the engine of the car is smoking because it took a lot of uh, a lot of damage when ramming into the tree earlier. So the garage starts filling with smoke. Uh, it cuts to some point later on that night when the husband finally does get home. And... He opens the garage door, notices there are a lot of smoke. He goes up to the car. Annie is in the car. And she's dead with the hitchhiker's sign in her lap. So that is how that part ends. She doesn't know that when she hits the hitchhiker that... One of the people that stops to help the hitchhiker is actually her husband. He, he's, oh, I, I didn't notice that. That's Yeah. Her husband is the one that's talking to the trucker, which, by the way, the trucker is Stephen King. That was his part in the film. He was the trucker. But yeah, he his, her husband was the one that came up right behind, behind it. He pulls over, and then the trucker pulls over. That's her husband. The whole time, her husband's the one that was... He was there at the, the crash site. That's why he was like coming home. Yep. What a twist. What a twist. But yeah. But yeah, that's 
Hitchhiker was the best. Yeah. It's uh, the it's the best out of the second one, but when compared to the first one, it's um. I would still say it's lacking. It's it's yeah, it's lacking. It's kind of like mid range when compared to the first movie. I feel like between the two of them, the Creepshow two film. They did more of the comma book with like the interlude with like the little boy getting the fly Venus flytrap bulb. They told more of a story with that and put the comic spin with that than more so in the films itself. Yeah. And that's okay, but I mean it kinda took away from me the magic that was the first one. With the different color lights and stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong, the hitchhiker in my opinion, could have been put into creep the first creep show and fit perfectly. And I would, would never thought nothing different. Um so we're going to rate them and give our final thoughts. Uh and then, you know, wrap up this divinely creepy podcast for the night. So, um out of the first one, of course, Father's Day is my first one. Is number one. Always will be number one. Father's Day, the crate, uh, something to tide you over. They're creeping up on you, and the lonesome death of Jody Verrill. That is my first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. Um, Father's Day is my first. Uh, the crate is my second. Something I tied you over is my third. The creeping up on you is is my fourth, even though I hate it. And the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill is my fifth, and as my favorites from the first creep show. Boy. Okay. Uh, my list, my rankings, a bit different. I would put the crate first as my favorite. Uh, then I would say something to tide you over. Then they're creeping up on you. And then after that, Father's Day. And at last, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. Well, at least we got one of them right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill was just a... Uh, Pretty, it, it didn't uh, stand up to the other ones. Yeah. It really didn't. <clears throat> and of course, you know, Creepshow 2 is easy. It's the Hitchhiker, Old Chief Woodenhead, and the fucking Raft. I agree. I mean, that 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 is definitely not a hard pick. And, you know, I know people who love the Raft. They like it. And you know, if you do, hey. You belong in a mental institute. Everyone's, <laughs> yeah. Everyone, but everyone's, you know, choice of, you know, character design and, you know, everyone's different. And I can't, you know, uh, say this or that, you know, but if you were to tell me that was your favorite, I'd probably look at you kind of crazy and go, okay. Well, <laughs> all right. Um. 
but yeah, guys, like I said, if you have never seen any of the creep shows, um, check out Creep Show One and Creep Show Two. There is out there a uh, a third called Creep Show Three, but it's like the Aragon movie series. It doesn't exist. Don't look it up. You'll be sorely disappointed. I promise you. I'm not joking. Don't look it up. It's god awful. Uh, it just doesn't exist. Um, and give the TV series a chance, guys. And if you have seen the creep shows, don't be so hard on it, y'all. You gotta remember, the first creep show came out in 1982. It's what the creep show TV series came out in what 2019. Something like that, 2018, 2019. That's a lot of years difference. We can't, we'll never get the same magic that the first creep show gave us. And you have to look at it as some of those stories really did kind of have the magic that the original creep show had. Like, um, the headless, uh, the head in the dollhouse or the gin in the suitcase. Um, some of those I felt like. Still had like the magical presence of the originals, but with a, just a really big updated spin on it. And I mean, I appreciate what they're trying to do. They're trying to bring back something that, you know, we loved way back in the day. And I'm not a big fan of remakes and remasters, but I really do appreciate what they're trying to do with the Creepshow TV series. So just give it a chance. Don't be so harsh and critical on it. Because there's some gems in those in those episodes that I'm like, wow, I really did enjoy this. I could really saw this being made back in the day. And it would fit. So, um, yeah, give it a chance. You know, don't go into an expecting the original creep show because it's not the original creep show. But appreciate the stories for what they are and just enjoy it. Get your kids into it. It's for the newer generations. Get your kids in the old ones too. But um, yeah, the, the the TV series is for the young and the old. So um, get them into it. Like I said, some of them episodes really do shine and really do have the spirit of what Creepshow was all about back in the day. Um, any last words, Willie? I uh, am not much of a horror fan. But even so, I still thoroughly enjoyed the first movie and thought that the second movie was okay. So even if you aren't a fan of horror, you should still be able to enjoy Creepshow and Creepshow 2 in some way. Agreed. And I'll leave you guys with a quote from the second one as our ending speech. Juvenile delinquency is a product of pent-up frustrations, stored-up resentments, and bottled-up fears. It is not the product of cartoons and captions, but the comics are a handy, obvious, and uncomplicated scapegoat. If the adults who crusade against them would only get as steamed up over such basic causes of delinquency as parental ignorance, indifference, and cruelty, they might discover that comic books are no more of a menace than Treasure Island or Jack the Giant Killer. Guys, I am your host, Cristela Bello. And I'm your co-host, McCreeps. And we are the Country Fried Nerds. Mmm. Mm, tasty. tasty. See you guys next time. <laughs>